Uh, good morning, brothers and sisters. I would encourage you to invite people along to the Gingerbread House if you can. Uh, it's, it is a wonderful blessing just to be able to share with the community where we are as a church. Um, it's really interesting the fact that when I mention to people where GCC is, they're like, well, they know where Bunnings is, they know where Dayspring is, uh, they don't really know where we are. And so it's not just, you know, but it's, it's always handy to remember. And doing the community thing with the uh, Gingerbread House is a wonderful opportunity to do that. So uh, I would encourage you to invite people along. I've got several people that I'm inviting and, uh, and Lord willing to be able to come along. And if you can help, help as well, that would be a great, a great blessing. So today, 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 we start a new series. And this series is actually taken from the Minor Prophets. These two words, uh, when God... When God is what we're going to be starting off with today, because with these two words, dependent upon where you or what you connect with those two words, will determine basically what that is. For, for example, you can look at that question in the context that you're in and think, well, when God, when are you going to do something? When's this going to happen? When's that going to happen? All dependent, all dependent on what's connected to those two words. And so I had a look and I found out there was a whole bunch of different phrases that are connected with that word, well, those words, when God. When God seems distant, which is a question that's commonly asked. Uh, when God says go, when God steps in, miracles happen. When God says wait, that's actually specifically a book cover about relationships. Uh, when God talks back down the bottom right, the one on the top left, when God made you, but it was a really cheesy one that said it was a relationship one. When God made you, he was thinking of me. And I just thought, I'm not going to show that because that's terrible. That was just terrible. Uh, when God decides to visit you, when God wants you to grow, he makes you uncomfortable. There's a whole bunch of things regarding these two words, when God. And today, what we're going to look at, uh, actually today and over the next several weeks, we're going to look at three prophets, three minor prophets, actually. And the question that's actually being shared with us today or the things that we're going to learn from, depending on our context, is this. When God answers. When God answers, depending upon the context that you're in, whether we are prepared to hear what God's answer is. And so we're going to look at the, the book of Joel. And we're going to look at Joel chapter 2 specifically. But what I really like about this book is the context in which Joel finds himself. If you read 2 Kings chapter 8, uh, verse 11 to Second Kings chapter 11, verse 21, you have the context with which Joel finds himself. Um, as usual, what takes place in the nation of Israel, there is a whole bunch of kings that are good, but there are far more that are evil. And in this context, we find Joel. You find a couple of kings in Second Kings chapter 8, verses 16 to 18, and 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, we get told about two kings. And I just want to focus on those two parts that are underlined. So you've got uh, the first one, which is in verses 16 through to 18. This king, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, begins to reign. But in verse 18, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then followed on by King Ahaziah, verse 27. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was the son-in-law to the house of Ahab. 
So we have the case of generation after generation, one generation just steeped in idolatry, followed by another generation that is steeped in stubborn rebellion, people that wanted to do whatever they wanted to do and live their lives away from God. So what does God do? As you read through the kings, as his people is taken away further and further from the intimacy that God desires with his people, God says someone to take care of it. Enter Jehu, or Yehu, depending on how you want to do it. But Jehu... When after he assassinates both those kings, Jehoram and Ahaziah, and he gets rid of so many things, but this is what I find fascinating about Jehu. He doesn't wipe out everything. In, in verses 29 and 31 of chapter 10, we read this. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal, or Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. Then in verse 31, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had made Israel to sin. Which I found interesting. This man used by God to get rid of these people that were just a terrible influence on the nation, leading them away from God. He wipes out so many things and, and reestablishes the ways of God to a point, but only to a point. For some reason, whether it was because it's something that was suited to him, whether it's something he desired to accommodate, he held on to some sinful acts as part of his own reign as he took over, which I find really interesting. Just for us, and this has got nothing to do with what I'm talking about, I just find it really interesting. For us, we find it really easy to get rid of the big things in our lives. We find it really easy, like if it was swearing, it may not be for you, like for me, I found swearing to stop very easy. Uh, another one I st- that stopped very easy for me was drinking. Uh, now, if you drink, please don't, don't mis- misunderstand me. I'm not saying drinking's a sin. For me, drinking was a bad thing because I had a bit of a drinking issue, okay? So for me, drinking was like, by the grace of God, drinking stopped. Praise God. Drugs, that was really easy to stop. Praise God. There was a whole bunch of things that were able to stop. By the grace of God, those things were able to stop. But there were the subtle things that I held on to. My pride. Oh, I'm a proud person. My arrogance. Yeah, I'm an arrogant person. My ignorance, because I'm stupid. You know, there there are those things that are just as simple. But my lust, my, my, my selfish desires, those things. You had the big things that you're able to get rid of, and God says, yeah, stop. And by the grace of God, they stop. But what little things that you hold on to and accommodate you because, I don't know, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel good about others. You, I mean, you might stop the drinking and, 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 and drugs, but you might harbor lust and resentment. You might stop like the, the, the way you talk and the swearing, but you might harbor gossip. You see the difference of what we do? And this is something that God, by His grace, needs to reveal to us, what little things we harbor. Because this is the context in which Joel enters. You now have this nation that has gone through several generations of idol worship, of rebellion, of compromising the things of God, and maybe in action to an extent doing things, but in attitude and in heart, probably still far away from what God desired. And this is the context we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at how God answers this context from the book of Joel specifically chapter 2. So if you can open a word of prayer with me, and we'll jump into the Scriptures together. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much that you are a God that is involved, that you're a God that answers, that you incline your ear to your people, that when we cry out, you respond. And so we cry out to you this morning that you will give us sensitive hearts, open ears, and the ability to see your hand at work in each of our lives. Father, give us wisdom to recognize your promptings and your movings. Give us courage to deal when we are convicted with the convictions that you lay upon our heart. And Father, to take practical steps to live in accordance with your heart and with your desire. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had to pay the price for a poor choice? Have you ever had to pay the price for a poor choice? Have you ever been told the consequences of that poor choice and you did it anyway? Has that ever happened to you? Right? Have you ever have you been told something by your parents, by your boss, by your teacher, and you thought, oh, and you do it, and then you suffer the consequences for it, and then you complain because you're punished for what wrong you did. I always found that interesting as a, as a child. Like, my parents would say something. I would, I would say, I'm going to do it anyway. I'd get caught. I'd get smacked a lot. And then I'd be upset at my parents for smacking me. But it was my fault anyway. This is the attitude we have toward God. But this is exactly what takes place in Joel chapter 2. What happens in Joel chapter 2, in the first, I think it's 11 verses, you have the Lord talking to the people of Israel about the consequences that are about to take place. He sits there and basically says to them, the day of the Lord is going to come upon you, and this is what's going to happen. He's laying it out for them. And so this is what he says. I've just, I've just bullet pointed it because I don't want to spend too much time on it. But in verse 1, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And then he lists the things that are going to take place because of their disobedience, because of their desire to live according with their own heart and their own will, independent of God. He says to them, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and thick darkness, a great and powerful people spread out on the mountains. And then he describes what this, these people will do. That fire devours before them, flames burn behind them, they appear as war horses, they consume all before them. They strike fear and anguish in others. They charge as warriors, scale walls of soldiers. They move forward without deviation. Their weapons are unstoppable. As thieves, they take over. The earthquakes, the heavens tremble. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is the consequences that's laid out in response to the nation of Israel's disobedience. You want to know how the Lord answers situations? You want to know how the Lord answers sin? You want to know how the Lord answers rebellion? In this case, the Lord's answer is with judgment. He is about to judge this people for their disobedience. Their consequences to their decisions to live a life replacing God. And it would be a reality not an idle threat. This is not an idle threat. If you've ever had a threat as a teacher, and I've done this, oh, this is terrible. And I'm, 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 not, I'm not the ideal teacher, because for those who don't know, I, I work at Borkham Hills High and I teach. Now, some of the t- students that I teach are actually the support unit students. 
And there's this one young man who's really, really naughty. Like he'll, he'll sit down, he'll swear at me right to my face. He'll tell me, he even threatened to stab me. And I'm like, I'm right here. He threatened to stab me. He's, he's, he, like he's a real naughty kid. And then one time I'm sitting there, I'm talking away. And, 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 he, and he's, got the, he's got his finger. He's, he's throwing me, he's flicked me the bird. He's flicked me the bird, and he's got the middle finger at me, and I'm right close to him. And so I walk up to him nice and, nice and calmly and stuff, and I did what parents do when they want to really freak out their children. I grabbed his finger, and I squeezed it really, really tight. And I held it, and I said to him, have I ever disrespected you, sir? And he goes, well, no. And he says, if you ever point this finger to me again, I'm going to snap it off. As I squeeze it. Now, please, I, I, that's terrible. I know that is terrible. That is terrible. You are not supposed to teach that way. That is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. I, I'm not proud of that. But then I let go of his finger, and then it, it got color back again, into it again. <laughs> and, then, and then I walked away, and I carried on. Now, since that day, I've had not one issue with him. Not one issue. I, I ask a question. He's the first one to answer the question. It's absolutely amazing. Now, please, I don't recommend teaching that way at, at all, at all. Please don't go out and say, I'm going to write this guy up, man. It's disgusting. <laughs> please, 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 please don't do that. Okay. Now, and, and, and so I, I did that. Now, here's what's fascinating. If you never follow through on a threat, then you become powerless. It, it, it basically attacks your character and attacks your integrity as an individual. That's why even as a parent, you say something, you have to follow through on it. You have to, and you have to be consistent in your judgments as a parent because once you, once you start, show, start to show inconsistencies, then the children, just, they lose all respect for you. What, what, what? And, and so this is what happened with this young guy at the school, and now, now I mean, well, he still doesn't like me, but he behaves himself in class now. Okay, but this is what happens here. This, this what God gives here to the nation of Israel is not an idle threat. This will come about because there is always a cost. There is always a payment for the disobedience that you show toward God. That's why in Galatians chapter 6, what does it say? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If a man sows to his flesh, he shall of the flesh reap corruption. But if he sows to the Spirit, he shall of the Spirit reap eternal life. That's just the reality of it. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. What does it say? For the wages of sin is death. There is a consequence to your sin. This is what he's trying to express to the people of Israel. There is a consequence to their sin. But this is what happens with us. No, forgive me. This is what happens with me. That as I look at consequences sometimes, I automatically sort of diminish that. And I think, I, I play it down. I play it down because I look, well, the consequence is death. Well, I'm not going to die, surely. I, I'm not sure I might live my own way. I might do my own things. But surely that won't cost me my life. And, and, and you look at this reality. You look at this reality of sin's consequence being death when you look throughout the Old Testament, when you look in the Scriptures. For example, when you look at Samson playing with sin, that cost him ultimately his sight. And then his dignity when he was humiliated in front of the Philistines. And ultimately his life. You look at David. What happened when David played with another man's wife? And you observe the adultery cost him the life of his son, his unborn son. It also cost him his testimony in the eyes of the nations around him because he was supposed to be God's man. Gehazi, who was Elijah's servant, it cost him his health 
when he lied, have a read of it, he lies when a man, I think it was the king of Syria, tries to, to offer a gift to Elisha and he says, nah, nah, it's okay. The king goes his way. What does Gehazi do? Gehazi runs over. He says, oh, uh, uh, my master changed his mind. Yeah, if I could have this, this, and this. And then what happens? The leprosy that the king of Syria was healed from becomes Gehazi's. It cost him his health. You look in Judas's betrayal, that cost him his life as well as his peace. If you read before Judas uh, commits suicide, the, the, the regret of what was done and the betrayal of, of an innocent man, of his savior, you see that sin costs. And sin's cost have effects that are very, very, very real. Now, for you and I, we might not think, okay, look, you may not catch leprosy. You, 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 you may not lose your life. You, you may not uh, like lose a, a, an unborn, unborn child or anything like that, okay? But sin costs. That's the reality that's taught in Scripture, which means this, that if you continue to live in sin, you might lose the joy of fellowship with the saints. It means you might lose the peace that passes all understanding. It means you might lose the vision to see the eternal riches that lay in store for you. It means that you might be consumed with what's going on around you and consumed with this life as opposed to the life to come. Have you ever noticed that when you have walked in disobedience that, and, and you, or you've, you've made a wrong choice and, and you're like, oh, and you just don't feel right. You, you find that the word isn't as alive and, and rich because you're harboring some bad attitude in your heart. You find that, that you're worried about things that you really shouldn't be worried about. Now, th- this is a two-edged sword, okay? This is a two-edged sword. One, it's good that that takes place in order for God to show you that things aren't right in your relationship. That's good. But it's bad in the sense that the enemy can use that to keep you away from the family of God. So it's a two-edged sword. And I have had it where people have sat there and said, and, and I've gone through this, where you think, I haven't been to church in such a long time. Oh, if I go there, people will think this about me. If people will think that about me. No, they won't. If, if you show up, I guarantee you, people are like, welcome back. That's awesome. Wonderful to see you. You know what I mean? So that, but that's what I'm saying. This is how sin costs. This means also for this, that for you and I, sin will find you out. Sin will find you out. And that's, that's the hard one. And, and, and if, if you're going to continue in sin, I heard a preacher say this, if you want to continue in your sin and continue to walk the way you want to walk, uh, you might sit there and think, okay, well, nobody knows. God knows. Nobody sees. God sees. And even though you may not be publicly identified with the things that you hold on to and the things that you harbor, God will reveal it to you. And sometimes God, if you're not willing to repent of that, God will make it publicly known. Uh, I believe one preacher put it this way. If you will not humble yourself before the Lord, the Lord will humble you for you. And that is a reality that I've seen evidenced within people's lives over and over and over again. Now, because of Jesus, our sin will find us out in a different way in which it was revealed to the Israelites. Okay, Now, we are told in Scripture that our 
natures before we become Christians, before the Lord Jesus saves us, is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And therefore, we cannot make ourselves righteous. We need someone to, to bring life to our dead spirits. It's like, have you ever seen those movies when they get the defibrillator and, and you've got a dead person and they like, they clear, okay? When you're dead, I've never seen a delivery. I've only seen the movies. It probably doesn't even happen in real life. They're probably just sitting there, buzz. Oh, I'm alive. Okay, I don't know. But the, the, thing, the thing is this. The thing is this. When you're dead, you cannot take the defibrillator and go, you, that, no, it doesn't work. Because you're dead. Because you're dead. You can't give yourself mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Because you're dead. That's our state spiritually. We need someone to come outside of us and breathe life into us. We need someone to come outside of us and shock us back to life spiritually. And, and, and this is what we have in the crucifixion of Christ, the example that he gives us. That's the reason why our sin ultimately, ultimately, we've been liberated from. We are no longer enslaved by. You, I, I want you to understand that, okay? But there will always be a consequence to your sin. There's always a consequence to your sin. I, I, I also want you to understand that. Yes, we've been free. We've set free from the penalty of sin because Christ paid for that on the cross. But we suffer the consequences of our bad choices. All right? I, I just want you to understand that. But this is why. This is why the judgment that the Lord puts forward to these people of Israel is for them to know how much He loves them. He's warning them, this is what's going to happen if you continue in your ways. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 12? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The judgment that God is passing on the nation of Israel here in the book of Joel is because he loves them, because he's their children, because he's their people. The discipline that you experience because of the bad choices you make is not God sitting there saying, ha ha, serves you right. He's doing it. He's allowing it to take place for you to understand how much you are loved by him. How many of you have heard that wonderful line by your dad while he gives you the strap? I'm only doing this because I love you. I think it's the dumbest line ever. I've never used it. But I remember hearing that so many times because I got smacked so many times. But I, I understand now. I can see Calvin and Victoria laughing because he's like, oh, that's, yeah, I heard that a lot. But that's, that's the love that, is, that a father has to his children. And so don't despise the discipline of the Lord that you're experiencing, the hardships, the struggles, all those things you're encountering because that's God saying to you, I want you back. I want you to see. I want you to recognize how much I love you and that the way you're going is not good for you. That's why the Lord answers in judgment because that judgment is done in love. There are brothers and sisters and uncles and aunties in this church who have said stuff to me which I have listened to and appreciated. Have I liked it? No. But I know of their love and I see their love for me 
And that love for me is expressed in what they say. So when I, when I hear what they're saying, I know it's because they love me a, a, as a man and as a friend that they're sharing such things. And that allows me to take it and think, okay, okay, thank you, brother, thank you, sister. So this is with our Lord. The Lord answers us in judgment because of his love for us. The second point goes on to this though. How else does the Lord answer? The Lord's answer through invitation. See, this is what I find amazing. He sits there and says, yes, you're walking in disobedience. Yes, you're about to experience judgment. And yes, here I am inviting you. That makes no sense whatsoever. Why? Because I'm only human. This is the love that God has. This judgment that's expressed in love is also expressed in invitation. Look what he says here in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 17. He says, oh sorry, 12 and, wrong one, sorry. Should be 12 and 13. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me, with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. You see, such discipline that is given in judgment is not given for the sake of being sadistic. It's not given for the sake of being mean or unfair but it's because the heart of God is for His people and His desire to reconcile the souls of His people to Himself. Thus, and the warning of such discipline comes an invitation to that same rebellious people, an invitation that extends beyond the rejection of Him and it reaches further than the denial of Him. It is the expression of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, that says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us. See, have you ever stopped to meditate on this reality, on this truth? Have you ever stopped just to take time to be still and contemplated the magnitude of this privilege, of an invitation by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, an invitation from the Creator of the whole universe that we, deserving of judgment, that we, full of sin and rebellion, He says come. He says, return. He says, welcome. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the opportunity that's been given to us? The fact that we can approach the throne room of grace. The fact that we can get on our knees and in the, because of Christ, cry out and He hears and He listens. That's that is something which we, we lose sight of. No, that's something I lose sight of at times, that He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the invitation that's been given to us. Now, here's what I find fascinating, that even this invitation, there comes a point when He says, okay, that's it. There comes a time when that invitation is closed. You, you want to know? Look at this. Look at this. In, in, the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we just give some examples. We have examples here of Noah. He had 120 years when he built the ark. And then, blam! There came a point 
when the door was closed and the flood came. Isaiah's call on Isaiah chapter 55, we read that we are to call upon, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Because there comes a point when you'll call and he won't be found, or you'll seek and he won't be found, and call and he won't be near. Uh, we read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 43, of the th- that he comes, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Or in the case of the ten virgins where five of them were unprepared. In Matthew 25, verses 10 to 13. This is why, with this invitation, there comes a warning. It says this, Ephesians chapter 2, 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, we are told in 1 Thessalonians that the Lord will come with the trump of the archangel and with a shout. And when he calls, there will come a time when grace comes to an end. There will come a time, that's, that's why we're told in Ephesians that we are to redeem the time for the days of evil. Now, I understand that the story we're looking at in Joel chapter 2 is the old covenant, the covenant of law where disobedience results in cursing and obedience results in blessing, where disobedience results in harsh consequences and such warnings and such warnings of who knows whether he will turn, okay, makes sense. Now, people have asked me and said to me, this idea of grace, well, it doesn't apply to us Christians. This idea of grace means that we are, we are free, that we can do this. Well, no, not entirely. And I've, I've shared this with you before and, and I'll share it again because it's best summed up by what John Bevere says. Grace is a higher calling to live in accordance with God's desire. It's a higher calling than walking and, and, and abiding by the law. It's a higher calling. It has to be. Why, why else? Why else would, would, would Jesus say, you've heard it said, you wouldn't look at a person with adultery, oh, sorry, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a person with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's a higher calling. That's grace. Grace has given you the ability to live in accordance with God's desire. Grace has given you the ability and equipped you with the power and the capacity to live a life of righteousness. That is what grace has done. Grace is not a free pass for you to live how you want. Grace has now given you the ability to live in accordance with God's heart. That's what grace does. Grace allows you to be heard by the creator of the universe now, where before you may not have been. What I mean by that is this. So I work at Borkham Hills High School, and I love the kids there. The kids are great. I really enjoy the kids there. They're a lot of fun. I, I've watched them grow up. I've, I've now seen some of them get married. I've, you, know, you see these things take place. But when my kids are there and my kids cry out to me, who do you think I'm going to go to first? Who do you think I'm going to climb my ear to? That when my son runs up to me and says, Dad, and another kid comes up and says, Oh, Joe, I'll be like, excuse me, yes, son. That's the way it is. Grace has now given us the privilege to be heard by God the Father as sons and daughters. That's what grace has given us. It is not a free pass to live how we like. This is what it is. And so this invitation is summed up all in this word, grace, because we are undeserving of it. Because Israel are undeserving it. But this, this is what happens in Joel chapter 2. The Lord extends an invitation to them and then comes to this third part, which I think is the most beautiful. The Lord answers by grace. 
The Lord answers by grace. In Joel chapter 2, verse 18, we read this. Then the Lord became jealous. That's the first point. He answered in judgment. He became jealous. Jealous, when people have asked me, and I just want to clarify one more time, the difference between jealousy and envy and why it says that God is a jealous God and not God is an envious God. Why? Because a jealous God, it means that he is jealous for that which he rightfully deserves. That's what jealous means. Jealous means, so you have, you have Jono and Chris. How long have you guys been married for now? How long? Seven years. Congratulations. Seven years. They got married September 10th, I know, because I was watching a rugby game in New Zealand at that time. Okay, so, okay, I always remember that day. It's, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. If Caris, if Caris gives her affections to another guy, Jono has every right to be jealous because those affections are rightfully his. When he said, I do, when she said, I do, they committed themselves to each other. Therefore, when she gives those affections to someone else, he is jealous for that because they are his by right. They, are, they, they entered a covenantal, a, a covenant in their marriage. And so he's like, no, those, those are mine. And they're mine. You said, I do. You gave them to me freely. Envy is where Jono desires the affections of some other woman for himself that are not his. Jono. So... <laughs> That's what envy is. <laughs> so the reason why it says that God is a jealous God is because our worship, our love, our devotion, our affection are His by right. He gave us life. He renewed us. He, he gave us everything and provided for us everything that we need. Therefore, when we give our affections to other things, whether it might be our own jobs, whether it be our own families, whether it be our own spouses, he becomes a jealous God because they're his by right. That's why he is a jealous God. And so it says there in verse 18, And the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. That's the invitation. So you have, you have the, the judgment and you have the invitation in that one verse followed by this beautiful passage from verse 19 through to 27. His answer of grace, the Lord answered. The Lord answered to their situation. The Lord answered to their context and said to those people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine and oil and you will be satisfied the lord said i will no more make you a reproach among the nations the lord said i will remove the northerner far from you the lord said i will drive him into a parched and desolate land the lord said answered fear not he answered be glad and rejoice for the lord has done great things the lord answered fear not the pastures of the wilderness are green the tree bears its fruit. The Lord said, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Verse 23, the Lord said, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. Why? Because he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured out, poured down for you an abundant rain. The Lord answered, threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. He answers, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, 
You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. My people shall never again be put to shame. You look how the Lord answers this rebellious people's situation. This heart that wanted to live independently of him. He invites them back and says, this is what I will do for you. I, I will send. I will no more. I will give. Do not be afraid. I am there. I will satisfy. He says, I will give you all of this. And he goes, I will do all this. Not so other nations will notice. Not so other nations will recognize. Not so other people will look at them and think, wow, look at their God. Nothing to do with that. You know why the Lord does all this? Verse 27. So that you, my people, shall know without doubt that I am the Lord, that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. All of that was done for his people. That's it. The love that he has for us, the love that he has for them is the bestowing of all of these things, not to earn their love, not to, not to, not to coax them into a response, but just to say, this is how much I love you. To, to do away, if we're told that love covers a multitude of sins, this is a multitude that is covered out of the greatest love of all. You see, such thoughts, such, such actions, such beauty, such blessing is reflective of the very heart of God's person. He bestows the grain and the oil. He removes the reproach of others. He removes opposition. He, his, his call to be fearless, the provision of fruitfulness. All of this is so that his people will understand that he's amongst them and that he is their God. I guarantee you, if you went home today and you spent time in prayer and just listed all the things that God has given you, all the things that God has provided for you, all the things that God has bestowed upon you, whether spiritually or physically, you can sit down, you can talk about your job. If, if you remember on the devotion on Friday, it was just to give thanks. It was to give thanks. It may be for the job that you have. It may be for the friendships that you've created or, or that God has blessed you with. It may be for the interactions that you encounter. It, you might even have had an accident. Maybe it's something that God had taught you. If you list all the things that God has given and, and bestowed and, and taught and, and blessed you with, the reason why all that's taken place is that you will know that He is in your midst. Is that you will know He is there. That you will know that He is real. That you will know that He hears you. Irrespective of the context that you find yourself now, your Lord is in the midst alongside you. As Brendan heads overseas and a complete new chapter, his God is there. For those of us that are here and we see different things go on in our lives, the Lord is here. And all of it's done for us to come to that realization. You see, the Lord answers us in order to draw us to himself and we will walk away knowing that he is in our midst and that he is our God. That's what this is about. This is how the Lord answers. He says, I do this so that you will see me, that you are not forsaken, that you are loved, and that you are worth it. See, it is this that is manifest in the Lord Jesus for us. 
He gives not to buy our affection, not to secure it. He does so because He loves on us so that we might live and love for Him. This is what makes the Christian faith so unique. So unique. I've heard, actually I just heard it this week. I heard that um, one person said, I don't want to become a Christian because I've got better things to do on Sundays. I said, okay, that's a really interesting thing. I, I don't want to become a Christian because I, I don't want to live in accordance with certain rules and things. And, and I just had to explain to them, oh, you know, you know I like going to church on a Sunday? Not because I, I have to, it's because I want to. He goes, well, what do you mean? I, I love going to worship my God with a group of people. I, I, I love singing praises. I, I love praying with, with other saints. I actually really look forward to that. And he's like, yeah, that's really strange. And that's okay. That's okay. He can say it's strange. But see, that's, this is what we, we have been given. See, we don't do these good deeds for the earning of God's acceptance. We do these things because we are accepted of Him. And, and, and this God, this God, see, when He answers, He does so with judgment. He does so with judgment in order to show us that not everything's right in our relationship with Him. That's why He judges us the way He does. But in that judgment, He gives us invitation. That invitation to return to Him, to repent of our ways, stop living our own way and, and bring ourselves in line with his will and his heart and in that invitation he shows grace because in all honesty we really don't deserve the 25th and 26th and 27th and 27,000th time we've gone our own way we don't but that's what he's given us by grace and he's given us all of this so that we shall know without doubt, that He is in the midst of us, His people, and that He is the Lord, our God, that there is none else, that there's nowhere else, and we as a people shall never be put to shame. This is how the Lord answers. I also close with a word of prayer, and as I pray, I'll invite the team up and uh, pray that we'd be sensitive to hearing the Lord's answer irrespective of our context. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for the lessons taught us through Joel. I pray you will help us with our spiritual senses to be able to hear and see what you are doing in our lives and that irrespective of what we are going through, whether it be hardship, whether it be struggle, whether it be a, a time of prosperity and joy, Father, that we will hear your voice through it all. So, Father, I pray that when you, when you answer, give us the boldness, give us the courage to hear what you're saying and respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.